How do we get to a more equitable society? What things need to be changed, rearranged, or removed in order for us to get to a place where there is equity for all? I'm sure you have many ideas on the topic. And I present to you today that education is a key component to equity. Hello and welcome to another episode of Inscribing Inclusion. I'm your host, Jocelyn Armstrong. I'm so glad that you have chosen to join me for yet another conversation. I am excited to have a guest for this episode. As you all have heard me say before, I'm always excited when I have guests because I have the great fortune of knowing a number of wonderful and talented and brilliant people. And today's guest is no exception to that rule. I have joining me Dr. Alice Ragland. Um, Dr. Ragland has a PhD in Multicultural and Equity Studies in Education. Um, she has been a lecturer at The Ohio State University, as well as previously working at the Crystal Ray Columbus High School. Dr. Ragland currently works at the Columbus College of Art and Design, and will share with us later in the episode some other things that she's working on. So welcome to Inscribing Inclusion, Dr. Maglin. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I gave your bio, but tell the listeners a little bit about who you are. Um, so I'll start from some of the sections in the bio. Um, I right now am an assistant professor of race and ethnic studies at Columbus College of Art and Design. Um, teaching about race, diversity, um, social justice is a huge, huge part of who I am. Um, I like doing that in other settings too. So I'm also a consultant. I'm a facilitator in various different settings. I've worked with many, many organizations in um, making sure that folks know the things that they need to know with regard to those topics. Um, I'm also a mother of two, um, a wife, uh, a creative. Um, I've been playing the flute for over 20 years at this point. I'm a writer. Um, so I have various different facets of myself. Um, I've been leaning a little bit more into healing lately as well. Knowing all of these very deep systems of oppression has helped me to realize how important healing is. So recently I completed a yoga certification um, to be a trained instructor. Um, and a community health worker certification. So I have a lot of various different things that I do, but for me, they're tied together in justice and in the importance of folks knowing the things that too often are hidden from us. That's how I initially got interested in doing social justice-based education. I can say a little bit more about that specifically of exactly how I committed to this work. But um, in short, I just wanted to make sure folks knew the things that are hidden from us, but that they definitely should know. So one, I love that you're a flautist. I did not know that. And so now I am like triple excited. I don't play instruments at all, but I get really excited when I meet folks who play instruments and you know, the, the instruments that people don't think about, right? Like, I mean, Lizzo's a flautist, so that's cool. So, but at any rate, um, I love that you talk about though, exposing people to the things that are hidden. Um, many of us are on a variety of journeys with DEI education or just life education generally. And so helping people access things that they have not been exposed to 
is so crucial in my mind in helping people shift their thinking about a lot of things. And I think some of it comes with even just people, one, learning about themselves and then launching out into the world and learning about all the things that there are to know. And that kind of gives us a, a segue into the next question of what led you to even want to consider a career in education? There are a couple of things that led me to consider a career in education. I think there are several different moments that solidified it for me. So first is I wanted to be a professor um, since high school. I didn't really know what it entailed. I didn't know what that meant really. I just knew that I wanted to be a professor. I knew that it was a person that teaches and works in higher education, but I just knew that that's what I wanted to do. But the things that I wanted to teach back then were totally different. I can't even start to explain what I, what I thought I was gonna be teaching about. But it was not social justice in education. It wasn't diversity. Um, and it wasn't cultural, cultural competency, whatnot. Um, but I knew that that was a part of what I wanted to do. I went through a couple of different majors in um, college. Many of them were it, it, some form of creative or fine art, right? Um, started off as a music major on flute, and then I ended up switching over to being a writing major, um, focusing on creative nonfiction. That's still something that I love doing, and it's um, been stifled a little bit since grad school, but I'm getting more into that creative writing aspect of who I am. Um, but at the end of my undergrad career, I took a class, I graduated three years, so I took a class my third year and it was in the Department of Cultural Studies at Ohio University. And that is the class where I learned about redlining and I learned about the history of how some neighborhoods became so decrepit and so um, under-resourced and how some neighborhoods ended up being wealthy. And I understood, uh, finally understood how that worked and how intentional it was. No one had ever talked to me about anything like that. I feel like the documentary that we watched, which was called Race, the Power of an Illusion episode, I think who the house we live in, it might be episode three, it's called The House We Live In, um, as far as that series. But I did not know any of that. I grew up going to a poor school, but attending a wealthy private school for summer camp. So all I saw was, you know, I noticed that I'm around a bunch of black people during school and the environment is not where it needs to be, right? We don't have field trips half the time. We don't have a lot of the resources that we need in the school. Yet when I go to the summer camp, not only do I have to drive past million dollar mansions on the way to the summer camp, that's right down the street because I'm from Cleveland. So we have the neighborhoods that you go slightly down the street and then you're in a totally different world, right? So I didn't know why any of that was. I just had heard the same narrative that everyone always says, oh, well, you just work hard. And I'm like, well, my mom works extremely hard. Um, so have my grandparents. However, we don't live in one of these million dollar houses. So, and we don't attend, we don't have the money for me to attend this wealthy summer camp for school, right? So what is it? You know, so I think that that kind of planted a seed. But then when I watched that documentary in that class, and then we had those conversations about the history of racism, the history of the legal implications and the policies that made it so that after slavery, there was thing after thing after thing that continued to keep black folks and other people of color 
down at you know in a racial hierarchy and whatnot i was mind blown first of all i never learned about wealth transfer i just thought everybody was outright buying these houses that were millions of dollars i did not know until i was literally grown that folks can die and pass down a house or pass down wealth i had never heard of that in my life until i took this class so while i'm thinking that folks are just outright making money and getting to the point that they are by their own hard work, I'm learning that, no, there's actually systems that contribute to some folks being able to do that and some folks that can't. And I feel like that was a very life-changing moment for me. And then shortly thereafter, there was the case of George Zimmerman, right? So um, after he killed Trayvon Martin, um, and I was already getting involved in racial justice activism, started off in environmental justice activism and economic equality and um, activism and that kind of thing. But I started getting really interested in racial justice specifically um, at that time. But I saw in that verdict when the jury said that race did not play a role in their deliberations to find George Zimmerman innocent and my heart was shattered. That changed my whole life. I was like, it seems pretty clear to me that that's the case, right? That race definitely played a role. I knew that there wasn't no such thing as being colorblind, but that's what they did to justify him getting off as innocent. And it seemed so obvious to me. So then I called my mom and I think I had been crying. I was devastated. I was devastated and I was crying and I called my mom and she was just like, yeah, that's just, you know, how it is. And I, I think that I was like, oh no, mm -mm. like I can't have people walking around here thinking that like race doesn't matter. Like what? No, absolutely not. So I found out that there was a completely different world that folks are living in. I think that that motivated me. And the last thing is that when I was in activism, um, particularly in the Black Lives Matter movement, more so the one that was 20, 2013 during that time period, not the one that's not talking about specifically like the 2020 resurgence, but I'm talking about like that earlier iteration of that in the, in the 2010s. Um, but I found out how detrimental it can be for our movements to have folks not knowing one their own histories two about intersectionality and three about how we got here and what are we fighting for and i saw that make our movement a lot weaker than it needed to be so i was like if we're going to be fighting in this movement we need to know what is what and because of our education we don't know what is what we don't know how we got here so we can't get past thinking about okay well maybe we should just fire this one person and not understanding that this as a collective right i understood that we couldn't understand that as a collective of this is a system right this is what we should be fighting for so i think that all of those moments that i just mentioned really motivated me into specifically focusing on social justice based education i'm sorry that was a long winded answer but that's that's kind of how it went <laughs> But that was the true answer and that was perfect because and I, I expect sometimes long answers from professors right that's just that's what it is, but it, it was it was a great answer because there was a continuum for you right there were different points along your life where that became a thing. While you were talking about redlining too, I was like peeking over at my bookshelf, there is a book called the color of law um, by Richard Rothstein where he talks a lot about the laws and the ways that they were used to shape redlining and remove people from opportunity. You talked about generational wealth transfer. And I think about my point of privilege, like I have a house, my mother had a house, my grandmother had a house, my great grandparents had a house, right? So that was a thing that was normal for me, um, but that is not everybody's story. And then your point about us not understanding and knowing our history, 
I was just having a conversation with another friend earlier, also a professor. I have a lot of y'all in my circle. Um, but we yeah. were talking about the importance of having ethnic studies and women's studies at, um, I mean, truly at any level of education, but certainly within um, college spaces. And one of her colleagues was saying, it's time for us to stop having these African-American studies programs. And I think it was a person who was of African-American descent because his argument was, well, it's a, part, it's a part of American history. And she said, yes, but somebody, if they make that as a part of their just regular American history course, will somehow conveniently, if it yeah. is their pleasure, skip those sections and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And I shared with her that when I was a, well, one, when I was a senior in high school, I was able to take an African studies course. We did not have an African-American study teacher who taught it. It was the history teacher who was also the football coach, but he was very committed to uh, trying to figure out how to teach this to high school kids. And then I got to college and started taking African-American history courses. And what I shared with her to your point was there were a lot of students in my classes who had no understanding of some of these concepts and some of these historical moments. And they were African-American kids because they had not been exposed to it. I grew up in a house where we watched PBS. We went to the library all the time. I worked in the library in high school. I watched Eyes on the Prize. I was in a scholarship program where we went on civil rights tours. I went to West Africa as a high schooler, right? So I realized that I was exposed. So, But even still sitting in those classes, there were additional things that I learned that I didn't know. And it was crucial to my development as a business major, as a future attorney, to have access and understanding to Black history and world history and women's history and how that, how that makes us full people and helps us interact with the world. And again, we can't, we can't fight for liberation or we can't fight for equity or access for people if we don't even understand what, they, what, what happened before and how we got there. So thank you for bringing that up. Exactly. Now you said intersectionality and uh, that is a term that is sometimes misunderstood or misused. And mm -hmm. we know that that is a concept that came to us um, from Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw. Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw also taught us about critical race theory. This is something, speaking of things that have been mischaracterized or misunderstood, um, this is something that Dr. Crenshaw developed along with some other lawyers and law students when she was a student. As a person who graduated law school and who is currently a lawyer, I can tell you that I didn't even get critical race theory lessons. These were things that I learned after I graduated law school and entered the practice. So in this wow. multi-layer thing that I'm spitting out here, um, talk to us about kind of how we got to the place where critical race theory was mischaracterized and how it can be corrected. Yes, that's a great question. So um, I should have mentioned, so in terms of critical race theory, um, I should have mentioned about, you mentioned about the multicultural and equity studies in education, but um, I was an educator, like I was a teacher before. Um, and I think critical race theory is something that was really, really important to that space, including the fact that that was a fifth grade class that I had, right? So we're learning about these things, right? Intentionally, um, while I was getting a master's in education, I found out about how the culture wars manifest in education. And that leads to our current debates on critical race theory. 
So before we had all of the current laws that are being passed to prevent folks from teaching about race, right? To prevent folks from teaching about um, really various forms of diversity in general, right? Um, we've had this issue over several decades. And I'll talk more about critical race theory specifically, um, but first I have to say that most of the time that's not actually happening in a lot of settings. I think there are significantly more educators who want that to be a part of their teaching and of their practice. But as far as the hysteria around, oh my God, everybody's everybody that's a teacher is telling the, your white children that they're all racist and all of that, that's complete hysteria. But I think the mischaracterization um, has started off a long time ago, right? Now, earlier in the the decades, right, earlier in the, the 2000s, and this even has a history, history before that, um, but Tucson, Arizona had an ethnic studies class, and they were doing a lot of historical work. And that class was designed to serve the students of color who attended that school, most of whom were Latine, and they were sometimes first or second generation immigrants directly from Mexico, right? Um, there were other students in the class as well who did not identify that way, but the class was designed so that they would understand race, gender, culture, and so that they could have a better understanding of themselves and the world that they lived in. So the class was transformational. And if anybody's um, in need of a documentary suggestion, Precious, Precious Knowledge is a documentary that goes through the entire ethnic studies timeline in, Arizona, in Tucson, Arizona. Um, but this is a transformational class for many of these students, right? Essentially, they're talking about how race continues to impact on, a, on various different levels, which is essentially what critical race theory is trying to say. You can't really deny um, that that's true. It's very difficult to deny that that's true, especially if you're a practitioner. So anyway, they ended up, they as in the legislature and the school board ended up shutting this program down, right? So they found it so dangerous that this ethnic studies program existed that those folks who were in power legislatively ended up shutting down the whole course, right? The exact same arguments that we hear in our current debates about critical race theory and the current hysteria are the exact same things that they were saying back then. If you look at any footage, or even if you see that documentary that I just mentioned, you'll see folks saying, oh, it's un-American to teach about that, right? You'll see folks saying, we need to be teaching only good things about America, or even to the point that they're breeding radicals and that they're breeding people who hate America, right? They're making colorblind arguments. They're saying, well, this is America. It shouldn't matter what color you are. We all, I won't say we all, because apparently we don't all know that that's not true, but most folks who have actually experienced racism on a personal level absolutely know that that's true. We have a few exceptions that aren't invited to the cookout, but most folks overwhelmingly do know that that does impact our everyday lives, right? So I think that when it comes to critical race theory, that hysteria and the misunderstanding of it and the misunderstanding of the very important and real idea that race continues to impact us on such a very personal and real level and on a societal level, right? 
that has roots in that earlier iteration of this hysteria around teaching around ethnic studies. Um, anytime folks' comfort is disrupted or um, and right, white people that are in power feel like they are being blamed for anything or pointing the you know, folks are pointing the finger at them. Um, I've noticed that they will protect their own comfort before they're protecting the people who are in the most harm and who are experiencing the most oppression, right? So I think that this is just another iteration of one, um, increasing hysteria around any form of diversity, equity, inclusion, social justice work that was buttressed by the presidency of Donald Trump. Um, a lot of the divisions and the, I think um, a lot of the divisions and some of the false narratives that were perpetuated and um, just disseminated during that time, disseminated during that time, right? So that's kind of, I. I don't know if that fully answers the question, but I think that that's kind of where we are right now. We're in this time period of increased hysteria um, around talking about race in general, right? Around talking about any form of subjugated or um, marginalized or minoritized identities. And this is just another element of an issue that we've had as a country in general, right? Where some folks are like, hey, this is wrong. We need to talk about this. And then there's other people that are like, no, no, everything is fine. We don't need to talk about this, right? Because that protects my comfort instead of solving the problem, right? So. So and I, you've mentioned colorblindness a couple of times, and I always find it interesting when people say that they're colorblind, but then they then in the next breath say how much that like this is a country of a melting pot and we love all people. I'm like, but every time that you say you're colorblind, you're erasing a part of somebody's identity, right? Because when you say you don't exactly. see color, you don't see that I'm a black woman, and that's important to me that I'm a black woman. And then also when you're saying you're colorblind, you're erasing that identity, but you will use the same color that you say that you don't see to further marginalize or discriminate in some other way. So you can't have it both ways. You can't say that you don't see color, but then you see it when it's convenient, right? That's all very interesting. And the disruption of people's comfort is very interesting too. In race, in gender identity and, and mm -hmm. all those things surrounding that, in socioeconomic status, anytime mm -hmm. that you're discomforted or uncomfortable or disrupted by someone else who's different than you getting something why you know there, there truly actually is probably enough for everybody if folks weren't hoarding and trying to maintain their own comfort right so with that being said <laughs> we talked about the various education spaces that you've worked in and you spent a good deal of your career in primary and secondary settings um, as well as in the in the college space, you're now shifting more toward what you've described as transformational community education. Tell us who you hope to reach beyond the traditional classroom walls and how you even set out on that journey. Mm -hmm. Great question. So I started thinking about this more um, after well, I've actually been thinking about it for a while, but one thing that I noticed is when we have conversations, even in my college classes or in general conversations with folks, and I'll ask, you know, just 
being an education researcher, I'm like, so where did you first learn about A, B, and C? And a lot of folks' answers are, oh, when I took a class in college, right? Uh, some people had that one teacher or maybe a program in high school where they were able to really you know, dig into those things, but a lot of folks did not have that experience until they entered college, right? So having been an organizer and activist primarily in Cleveland before moving to Columbus, um, I noticed that there were a lot of education gaps with that, right? So there were folks who were in movement spaces who maybe did not have the opportunity to go to college, or maybe that just wasn't their decision to go to college. But we all need to know this stuff, right? If we're going to be fighting for something, we need to know what we're actually fighting. What is the historical context of this? That's something that you should be able to know, not just in a college setting, right? I think that everyone needs to know about these things. The other thing is that even though we have a lot of hysteria around critical race theory being taught in schools, which sounds ridiculous to come out of my mouth, but I think we still don't have a lot of actual teaching about that, like I mentioned before. So a lot of folks are getting through their K through 12 education without actually knowing some of these deeper elements, right? Without knowing about the history behind things without knowing how patriarchy impacts us and how we have various different power dynamics even amongst people who have similar skin tones, right? Um, we don't, we still aren't learning about those things. So I think that um, I would hope to reach anyone who actually wants to learn about those things outside of a traditional classroom setting. Um, I did a panel a few years back pre-COVID on the contemporary impacts of slavery. It was at the main library. And there was someone who came after the panel and asked, where can I learn more about this? Because I really want to talk to my children about this more. And I didn't really have any good suggestions. I can't say, oh, well, maybe you should enroll yourself and all of your children into college and then go take an African-American class. I, you know, so I think that there is a huge need for creating more spaces outside of institutions, outside of K-12, outside of higher education, where folks can come and just learn about these things, right? Um, I know that they do exist but that should be something on every block. Personally, I think that that should be extremely accessible, right? There are workshops, there are opportunities to hear speakers and whatnot, but what I'm talking about is that transformational piece where we have some kind of continuation, we have community building. It's not the same as reading things online by yourself. It's not the same as taking an online class by yourself and then watching a bunch of recordings, right? We're not only doing the work to understand this more, but we're actually building community in the process. So I think that um, that is kind of the vision for that. Um, the other, the other part of the question, I think, did you say what was I um, planning to do with it? What well, you kind of answered it both because I asked you who you hope to reach and kind of how you got on that journey. So you did tell us oh. you know, how you started there. And it's funny mm -hmm. because what you said about talking to the person after the, the seminar and them asking about how they can learn more and teach their kids, it made me think of, and I'm going to kind of use a little creative license here, but it made me think of a Toni Morrison quote 
about if there's a book you want to read and, and it doesn't exist yet, then write that book, right? And so it's in, I kind of took that, what you did is if there's a solution that you want to create and you don't see it, create that solution. And that seems to me yeah. to be what you're doing. And you're making this education more accessible. We were fortunate to go to college and, and have even, you know, graduate education after that. But like you said, everyone either doesn't choose that or it's not immediately available to them, but that doesn't mean that they should not, could not, would not be able to learn this information. And so you are, in my estimation, embodying and doing what you say you love. And that means making sure that anybody has access to education, no matter where they're sitting, no matter what their life station is. And I love that. I love yes. that. Yeah, I definitely appreciate that. So you opened the conversation when you were sharing with us who you are and you've talked about your music, you've talked about art, you've talked about getting your yoga certification and about how important healing is to you because we have to balance a lot of the things in this world by healing ourselves and helping others get healed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so you, you talk, talk to the listeners, how, or I should say, tell us how you balance providing all this education and opportunity for other folks with having healthy boundaries and, and taking care of you and your family and, and that, how, how do you balance those things? That is amazing question. I have not a hundred percent figured that part out, but I do think that it's much better than it used to be. It is a very, being an educator in general is very emotional work. And then, especially when you add in the dynamic of that you're teaching about racism and sexism, heterosexism and class and like these very heavy topics all the time. Um, I think that I've this has been something I've been doing for like the past 10 years. So it's not as draining, but sometimes there can be situations that are draining, right? Some, sometimes folks can ask one simple question and it just throws me off. And I think that having a little bit of distance, right? Even though this is a reality that I live, it's not like I'm talking about it in third person about racism and patriarchy and all that, but I can draw a little bit more separation where I can talk about it in a certain way where it doesn't have to be quite so triggering for me. Um, I think that there are some questions that I try to clear up at the very beginning. So when it comes to setting boundaries, one thing that I say in the beginning of any class, again, these are classes about race, black history, diversity and whatnot. So I set strong boundaries there, right? what we're not gonna do is have a debate about if racism exists. And I give them st things to read in the beginning that makes them understand why we're not about to do that. But that would be a very triggering conversation. If we have to spend, I, and I've experienced this in classes, right? Where we're spending 30 minutes debating, is this happening? Absolutely not. We're not debating, is this happening? Because if you're looking in most fields of scholarship, you're not taking everyone's opinion. You're looking at the people who have been studying and researching this topic for a long time and who are publishing on this. Amongst that crowd, there's not a big debate about if racism exists. So I have to explain it to them like that because sometimes diversity work can 
folks, similar to how education work can be. Folks just feel entitled to just say stuff. And it's like, no, this is a field just like any other field. I'm not about to walk up to a bunch of engineers and start saying, no, I don't think that's correct. Absolutely not. So don't do that when it comes to education and don't do that when it comes to diversity work, right? Or social justice. So I think that setting that boundary, it helps to prevent a lot of that. Um, I think another thing is just to make sure that if one of those moments does happen that I continue to complete the stress cycle. Um, completing the stress cycle is, <laughs> um, there's a whole book about that, but just so that it doesn't just sit, right? And I can, I can remember that that moment happened because I'll still feel that moment in my body. I'm still tense. I'll still have a weird heartbeat and I have to do something to get past that moment. Similar to if someone's just irrationally rude to me at the store and I'm like, what? I can feel that in my body and I have to do something to get past that moment or else that's just gonna sit in my body. So whether that's watching something funny, right? I can, because I talk about so much heavy stuff and stuff that's frankly just sad all the time, I have to watch comedies a lot, right? I have to have that as a part of my wellness practice. Don't ask me, did I watch this one show that's real sad? No, I didn't, because I can't watch that stuff because I need to watch a comedy. Usually I need to watch something to lighten me up a little bit, right? Because it's heavy work that I'm doing on a daily basis. And I think that just having that as a boundary, like these are the things that I need to do to be able to take care of myself. Another thing is that having boundaries around what I will engage with. News has been a huge issue for me. I had to delete the news app off of my phone. No, I'm not gonna be totally oblivious to everything that's going on, but I'll probably listen to the news mostly in the car, right? I had to set that boundary for myself. I can't be going to class and talking about race and racism for an hour and a half and then turn on the news and, and you know, and turn on the TV news and see that all the, like, I need, so I need a moment, right? So I've had to draw boundaries around that and not feel guilty for that because it's not the same as digging my head into the ground. I just need to create boundaries as to when I can receive this information. And then if NPR is too much, like it was the other day when the BBC was doing it interview of Americans about how they felt about the political cycle. And then I, I just felt it in my body. I was like, my heart was getting fat. My heart rate was getting fat. I'm like, all right, I got to turn this off. I cannot listen to this right now. I can't. So just being able to claim those moments and say, I can't do this right now and being comfortable with that, that has been a huge area of boundary. Um, and I've had to also just realize what previous traumas I've had too. I think that that's another thing I ran into being in movement spaces. There were a lot of people that had experienced various forms of trauma and they were actually perpetuating that um, and actually perpetrating abuse within our own social movement spaces, right? So just being able to recognize where those things are with me and being able to start a healing journey, being able to get into therapy so that I can address those things because I don't want to be out here telling people how they can be better and I'm causing mad harm, right? And that's not to say that I'm perfect, but I know that I needed to start that journey and get into therapy and make sure that I was doing things wellness wise, making sure that I'm able to keep up with my wellness practices. So I think that that kind of helps to keep me balanced. Um, I think the biggest obstacle for me right now is just time, like having two, um, having two younger children and then having a lot of, a lot of jobs. <laughs> it's, it's, but in terms of boundaries around the work, I think those are the main things that, that I've been able to do. And it's been really helpful. And then the last thing is at not feeling 
not taking things so personally, right? I used to be devastated when folks, when I first started talking about, you know, publicly talking about these things and doing little trainings and stuff when I was a college student. And I would have my little thing, we were doing a little awareness and I had to learn not everybody cares that much and I had to not be hurt by that. And of course I want them to care, but I can't take on that load. I can't personally be responsible for someone else caring, right? So I had to just learn that and draw boundaries around that. If you act completely uninterested in a conversation or in learning about something that's deeply personal and not only that, but it's a matter of life and death, I'm not engaging with you. Why don't you take a few a few chances to read some articles, maybe talk to a few people and then understand why it's important. And then you can come to me and then we can talk about it and go deeper, you know? So I have to draw that boundary. I've had to draw that boundary in professional spaces. I don't want to be the first person to blow your mind by letting you know that racism exists. I don't want to be that first person. I've had to draw boundaries around that. And there are plenty of people who want to be that first person. There are plenty of people who work in DEI who like to be that person, but we're not arguing about that, you know? So I think just not taking those things personally and then drawing boundaries around how I'm willing to engage has been very, very helpful because it is heavy. It's heavy hard work. So you got to figure out a way to be able to stay in the work without getting burned out you know, or about without getting extremely depressed and things like that. You mentioned counseling and of course the drawing of boundaries. And it's funny because when I talk to folks about doing DEI work and I do it primarily in my profession, but I tell people I'm good with this level of engagement. I like, I like being the introductory person a lot of times. It's fine. But I also tell folks that I spend my time with the people who are like, yeah, let's learn this stuff. Or those people in the middle who are like, I, I think I want to learn. I don't know. For the folks who are absolutely like, I don't want any end of this, I leave them where they are. We'll come back and pick them up later, maybe. I'm not, exactly. But I'm going to expend my energy on the folks in the middle because they're trying to navigate something, right? And we don't have to be in abusive situations. We don't have to deal with people who are staunchly against it. That's fine. That's fine. They, they have their space too. And again, maybe they'll come around later. We'll, mm-hmm. we'll pick them up on the way back. And I like mm-hmm. though that you, you talked about how you do monitor your media intake and you think about you know what you're listening to and how much you're taking in because that's important too because again this work is heavy and it can be overwhelming on some days and us not owning people's responses and reactions is very important because all we can do is deliver the information and try to help people learn we are not responsible for the results it's like planting because you're an environmental person it's like planting a seed and watering it like you're supposed to and fertilizing like you're supposed to and then being mad if that one particular plant doesn't grow. You did all the stuff you were supposed to do, right? Right, right. Just didn't pick up this time. That seed didn't germinate. So exactly. before we get out of here, on your website, which I will share in the show notes, folks, as you're listening, you will get the, the link to Dr. Raglan's website. Um, on your website, you describe yourself as a lifelong learner. And that's something I love because- I, again, I'm always taking in information everywhere that I can. Um, I would probably describe myself in the same way. For those of us who are lifelong learners, we sometimes encounter people who seem to be stagnant or disinterested in learning anything new. Is it possible to ignite a thirst for knowledge 
in somebody who is stagnant? I think it can be possible, but it might not be you that's the one that's lighting it, right? I think that people can always learn more if they want to, right? If they want to. Some folks do, and some folks, they might want to learn about one thing, but then they don't want to learn about another thing, right? Um, I think that it is possible, but I can't really force somebody to want to continue to learn, right? So if someone finds something that they're interested in, that's great. But if we're having a conversation and they're just like, no, I don't really want to hear about this, right? I would first ask like, are they stagnant or are they scared to talk about this? You know, is it like a, a moment of discomfort that's making them not want to discuss this? Um, so they might not be stagnant. They might just be uncomfortable with the conversation. And then, you know, if we do all of the things or if, you know, I can create that environment where they feel more comfortable talking about those things, then I can determine like, are they actually stagnant or are they just, they just were uncomfortable. Maybe it was unfamiliar, right? So I think that figuring out that distinction is really important. Um, now, if somebody actually truly is stagnant and they don't want to learn something, um, then that is a tough one because it's like, you have to put some energy into learning things, right? You have to be able to, I can't just teach you, right? You have to be able to take the bait a little bit too, right? Um, I usually say like, I can lead you to the water, but I can't force you to drink, you know? So I don't really believe in forcing people to drink. Um, I think that it is, it's hard to, feel like you have to be the one to pull someone out of their stagnation on a particular topic. We see this on Facebook or whatever social media, a lot of times you might say something and then somebody might have a staunch opinion and it seems like maybe they're not open to hearing about that thing, right? And I know that the, you know, you can say that about both sides is good, but which side is causing that most of harm is usually the question that I'm asking. So if someone is staunchly not about to say, if somebody is staunchly convinced that racism is a huge issue, and then there's somebody that's staunchly convinced that racism doesn't exist, which one of those is causing the harm, right? So I'm, I'm uh, this is a little bit a side note, but I have a big problem with equating all sides of everything and pretending like they have some kind of moral equivalency because which sides are generally causing more harm. Anyway, that's that's a side note. I won't even go there. But, you know, just thinking about what is it that's causing that stagnation and then is there a way to pull them out after having a little bit of a conversation? Sometimes it seems like, okay, maybe we're making some progress, but if it's a staunch no, I don't want to hear about this, then as you said, we can just, okay, cool. All right, I'm going to move on because I have to be able to protect my energy so that I can talk to the people who really do want to learn more about this. If I spend all my energy on you and your stagnance and your um, not wanting to hear about anything and not wanting to learn or grow, then I'm spending energy on you that I could be spending on people who really want to learn and grow more, right? Um, so I guess the short version of my answer would just be that it's possible, anything is possible, um, but it won't be something that I will personally feel responsible for if somebody genuinely is stagnant, 
if they're genuinely stagnant and not just feeling scared or uncomfortable, if that makes sense. That totally makes sense. And I understand completely that it makes sense that we have to kind of be more nuanced in our approach to people because sometimes their no is not a hard no. It's a, I'm unsure and this makes me nervous. And um, that's kind of part of the reason too why I want to have you on and why I have this podcast generally because it gives a space for people to be exposed to thoughts and ideas that maybe are not a part of their regular, regular intake and they can do it in a space and kind of ideate on it and think about it and reach out later. So it's, it's all about like the introductions and being, mm-hmm. you know, comfortable yeah. and not being afraid. So with that being said, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. I appreciate your brilliance. I appreciate all the things that you do, the 50 million jobs that you have and, and your steps that you're taking to educate the world. I, um, I fully support it and I will acknowledge publicly um, I know your spouse and your spouse is the first person I met in your house. And I feel mm-hmm. like I have robbed myself of an experience. Um, I need to spend more time with you too, because uh, this has been great learning more about the way your brain works and your commitment to the community. So thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much. Alex is great. <laughs> no, no shame to your spouse. He's great. <laughs> But yeah, no, I agree. We definitely need to do more. And I think, um, yeah, the only other thing is just thinking about that last couple questions is just like uncomfortable doesn't have to mean unsafe. You know, folks feel like it's unsafe. They feel uncomfortable about the topic, but that doesn't necessarily mean that their safety is disrupted. Um, So yeah, I'm really appreciative of being here. Thank you so much for having me. Well, listeners, thank you so much for joining this conversation with Dr. Ragland and myself. Stay tuned for our last segment, One Last Thing, and then tune in again next time. And now it's time for One Last Thing. I hope that you enjoyed the conversation between Dr. Ragland and I. I want to encourage you to take some of the things that she said to heart. She described herself as a lifelong learner And we talked a little bit about that. She also talked about her passion for making education accessible to all people, no matter their station in life, where they find themselves, what their previous experiences have been. If they want to learn, she wants them to be able to learn. So I hope from that that you take inspiration to continue your own learning journey and in all the ways that you have available to you, help make education accessible to others. Be sure to like and subscribe to Inscribing Inclusion on your favorite listening platform. You can also follow the podcast on Instagram at Inscribing Inclusion and on Twitter at InscribingPod. And if you feel like you just need to send an email, inscribinginclusion at gmail.com is where you can reach us.